Tonight's reading is from John 21, from verses 1 to 19, and is on page 97 of the Gospel booklets. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were, disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we will go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom loved, who Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred meters. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it, and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It, is full, it was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. The outline for this talk looks like this. First of all, death that glorifies God. Then the fishing trip breakfast. And then that Q&A, the discussion between Jesus and Peter. And confusingly, I'm going to start at the end to show you what John has in mind beneath the storyline. This isn't just any old fishing trip or any old conversation with Peter. There's some history here. There's some important things. There's matters of life and death that are being covered. And I should warn you that this evening I'm going to be speaking about death. And if that's too difficult for you at the moment because of something that you're going through, then don't be embarrassed if you want to just quietly sneak out. No one will be offended. So I'm going to start with verse 18. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and somebody else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And he said to him, follow me. Peter's told about the nature of his death. 
Jesus knows that when Peter is old, he will be crucified. Now, it's not recorded in the Bible, but an early church writer, Hegesippus, tells us that's exactly what happened. But why does Jesus tell him? What difference would it make to him and the other disciples? And we might ask, what difference does it make to us knowing about Peter's death? Well, I know that death is not an easy subject to talk about. Some of us are hurting from what's happened in our lives recently. And if that's you, then please take comfort that Jesus knows the pain that's involved. He feels it deeply and comforts those who need it with his reassuring voice. And often death comes when we're not ready for it. And it can overwhelm us. But in order for us to understand this passage, I do think we need to spend a little bit of time looking at death. And there's a great reluctance to do that. To even mention the word, we tend to avoid it. You can say, pass away, but you can't say, died. I suppose it's not surprising. The more comfortable that we've become with our lives, the more, much, the more we enjoy the good things in life, the less happy we are to face up to the harsh reality of death. We stop believing in any afterlife. It's just nicer to ignore the biggest fact of life, that it comes to an end. But then what? All our focus is on this life. But because we know the Easter story, believers in Jesus can face death and talk about life after death without fear and with great certainty and even greet it with joy. This book is all about life. But to understand what the disciples were thinking, we first have to clear away some of the ideas that we might have heard from people around about today and replace them with what the Bible teaches, which is what the disciples knew and believed. I want us to see what the disciples were thinking about death in the time of Jesus. So let me first of all list six unhelpful current ideas about death. First one is death is not real. It's simply something in the mind. That's the belief of Christian science. Mary Baker Eddy. Not very common today, but held by some people. Number two, you'll live on in your children. There's a Chinese proverb that says there are only four things of value in life. Planting a tree, building a house, writing a book, and having a son. Those things will live on after you. Well, I'm sorry if that's been your philosophy of life. I'm afraid it's not what the Bible teaches. Number three, there's nothing after you die. It's oblivion, lights out, nothingness. Number four, reincarnation. The idea that you'll live on in another person or creature. Well, there's not even a hint of that in the Bible. Number five, that your soul goes on and you're finished with your body, but your soul goes on floating in some kind of lovely existence. And number six, everyone believes something and everyone will go to a better place, won't they? 
Well, none of these is helpful or true according to God's word. Wishful thinking, sentimentality, and false religion give us no comfort or help when we face death. The Bible is much more precise and encouraging if we hear what it says and do something to escape the punishment that we all face. Here's a very brief summary of the facts of death from the Bible. One, death is real. The Bible takes it utterly seriously and talks about it clearly and often. Two, death is an enemy. It's to be fought and belongs to Satan's kingdom, not God's. It's tied up with evil and is a bad thing. Three, death is not the end of either the body or the soul. It may cause their temporary separation, but only temporarily. Number four, beyond life, there are two destinies and only two. Not everybody is going to the same place. Number five, we decide on which of these destinies is ours and we make the choice in this life only. Number six, death is always followed by judgment. There will be a day of reckoning, a day of accounting, where the book of our life will be examined. Number seven, the sting of death is sin. The deepest fear we all have is that we will be held responsible for all the wrongs that we've done. And number eight, death has been conquered and the sting has been removed. When Jesus spoke about death, he said, fallen asleep. When Jesus raised Jairus' daughter and Lazarus, although they were both clearly dead, he said they were merely asleep. He said that because the reason he'd come to this earth was to conquer death. He saw raising them from death like waking someone from a good night's sleep. Well, now all the disciples had had this training. They'd been grounded in the realities of life and death. They'd graduated in practical theology, how to relate to God, what is right and wrong, and what to do because we've all chosen the wrong path at some time in our lives. It's just the disciples weren't ready to accept that Jesus would conquer death by dying a humiliating death himself by crucifixion. And then rising again on the third day. Jesus had told them many times, but they'd missed that point. They just couldn't grasp that. They couldn't understand the significance of Jesus taking our sins upon himself and dying. So how did they do when it came to their time of testing? How many graduated with honors from Jesus' three-year ministry training course? Well, not one. Judas Iscariot, filled with greed, betrayed Jesus and lost everything. And the other 11 flunked their final exam. Or so they might have thought. They'd all deserted Jesus in his time of trial and death. They'd all put their own safety above their love of Jesus. Their fear of death paralyzed them. And they deserted the cause. 
but their training was not yet complete. Jesus hadn't given up on them. And that's good news for us because he doesn't give up with us either when we've failed to grasp some of the important facts about life and death. Okay, so while we've got our thinking, our our Bible thinking straight on death, let's move on to the fishing trip breakfast. What were the disciples doing just days after the conqueror of death had appeared to them alive when they were in that lock room? Well, they're back in Galilee. Why? Some think it's because they were rebellious and they'd gone back to the life that they knew before they started following Jesus when they were simple fishermen. But if that's true, there's no hint that Jesus rebukes them for doing that. In fact, he helps them with their fishing trip. Now, I think they're in Galilee because do you remember what the angels said to them when they got to the empty tomb? The angel said, Jesus wants you to go on to Galilee, where he would meet with you. So there they are in Galilee. And Peter suggests a fishing trip. Great idea, say the seven Galilean disciples. That's a good use of our time while we're waiting to meet with Jesus. And did you notice in verse 2 that Thomas was one of the seven? Thomas, Didymus who'd missed out the first time that Jesus appeared. He wasn't going to miss out this time. And the young fishermen, probably still in their early 20s, were back at work. They knew Jesus wanted them to fish for men, not fish. But they didn't know how to do it without Jesus to guide them. So let's join them on the boat. It's been a night's fishing trip, which was quite usual in those days. And how had it gone as dawn breaks? Well, it's been a disaster. They hadn't even caught any tiddlers. Nothing at all. Zilch. Now, I wonder, how do you think they expected Jesus to greet them this time? Do you remember how he greeted them when they were in fear in that locked room? And he just appeared and he said, peace be with you. And then a week later, this time when Thomas was there, again he repeated it, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Now in Galilee, his greeting is different. A more accurate translation of verse 5 would be something like this. Hey lads, you haven't caught any fish, have you? No, they reply. So he tells them where to throw their nets. And they get a bumper catch. Which is a handy reminder of the first time that Jesus told them where to fish. That time they'd nearly broken their nets trying to lift the fish into the boats. And two boats nearly sank under the weight of it all. So now they wisely drag the net to the shore. But let's look at what happened on that original fishing trip in Luke's Gospel Chapter 5, which will come up on the screen. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's just another name for the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. 
he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, He fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they'd taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. How did Peter react to the miraculous catch of fish? Well, he fell at Jesus' feet and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. The miracle had highlighted his unworthiness. He knew that he didn't belong in the presence of the Lord. But Jesus assured him, Don't be afraid, from now on you will fish for men. Simon's sinfulness wasn't going to stop Jesus making him into Simon Peter one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Now it's nearly three years later that Peter is reminded of what Jesus had called him to do three years ago. I wonder if that's why Jesus wanted them back in Galilee. To give them something to remember, to look back on, when later they would struggle with the job of talking, taking the good news to the world, having to cope with rebellious churches and problems and casting their nets wider, they could look back on this time. We'll turn now to John 21 and verse 7. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord! As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment round him, for he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. I wonder when John realized that it was Jesus. John was the fastest runner and the quickest on the uptake. But as usual, Peter was the first to react. He'd lost the race to the empty tomb, but Peter was the first inside. And he was the first to the shore this time. Although he got respectably dressed first, his unworthiness was always in mind when he was near Jesus. Now we're not told how Jesus greeted Peter as he came dripping onto the the shore. Because the author is too busy getting the boat to shore with the other disciples dragging the net with them. And when they finally land the boat, they see that Jesus has been busy getting breakfast ready. I found it interesting, the word for fish on the fire is singular. Jesus just had one fish. We don't know how he caught it or whether he was given it and where he got the bread from. 
but we know that he can provide those things. And Jesus asks them to bring some of their catch to cook it as well. And then he serves them their bread and fish breakfast. But I wonder what they talked about. I wonder what the small talk was like. They knew it was Jesus, but no one dared ask him who he was. They were experiencing something new. A meal with Jesus in his resurrected body. Perhaps they were too tired, or too hungry, or just overwhelmed by what was going on. But they would remember it for the rest of their earthly lives and be able to talk about having breakfast with the risen Lord on the beach in Galilee. They would go on fishing for men after that day, but they would need the helper with them if they wanted to be successful. Jesus had breathed on them in the upper room to receive the Holy Spirit. But they had to wait until the Feast of Pentecost for the Holy Spirit to give them the power to do what Jesus had called them to do. But John doesn't take us that far. We don't hear that in John's Gospel because he wants to end his book by telling us how Jesus handles Peter's problem. You see, Peter had declared that he would lay down his life for Jesus. But Jesus told him that he would deny him, deny that he's even a follower three times in order to save his own skin. And that's exactly what happened. Peter was doing his best to be loyal to Jesus. He was trying to be close to where Jesus was held. But three times he said, I've got nothing to do with him. It's nothing to do with me. That condemned man, no, no, nothing to do with me. And then the cock crows. And he realizes what he's done. And he's inconsolable. So let's look at that conversation between Peter and Jesus. That Q&A in verse 15. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. There were three denials by Peter. And so Jesus asked him three times about his love for him. Now I find it interesting that the word for love that Jesus and Peter spoke is slightly different. Some people think it's not significant. But Jesus twice asked the question using the word for sacrificial love, agape. But Peter replies with the word for friendship, filio. Something to, akin to, I really like you, rather than, I love you. Now, it doesn't really translate exactly into English, but it would be something along these lines. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I really like you. Tell me, Peter, do you really love me? Yes, Lord, you know I really like you. Peter, 
Do you only really like me? Lord, you know everything. You know I really like you. Well, I don't know if it's significant because some say the two words are interchangeable and you can't read too much into it. But I tend to think that Peter was being so careful to be truthful with Jesus and not to overstate his own love, having previously said that he'd lay down his life for him and failing to do it miserably. And Peter's response to Jesus doesn't affect how Jesus reacts. In response to Peter's filio love, he says he is to feed the newborn, to tend the flock and provide food for the more mature believers as well. All those teaching and pastoral duties of a member of God's family. And we've already seen that Jesus follows this up by telling Peter that he will indeed lay his life down for Jesus. He'll be crucified. The same way that Jesus laid his life down. So Jesus doesn't take offense at Peter's honesty when he comes to answer in the way that he does. But what about us today? We're not eyewitnesses of the resurrection. But when we respond to Jesus' love for us, he also calls us to feed the lambs, which is bringing the good news of forgiveness through believing in the Lord Jesus to those who are new in the faith. To tend the flock, which is demonstrating the new life in Jesus and encouraging the church through the gifts that he's given us. And to feed the sheep, which is teaching everything that we need for life and godliness through God's word, the Bible. So to finish, what are we to make of this passage? It was a unique experience for those disciples. They would go on to launch the church because, because Jesus is alive. They didn't only see him alive, they had breakfast together. His death was not a sad ending, but the joyful beginning of the good news of forgiveness for everyone who comes to him. And he even forgives people who've messed up big time, like Peter. Death has been conquered once and for all. The sting of death, that fear that we will have no plea except guilty, my Lord, when we face the day of reckoning for our sins. That's been taken away by Jesus paying the price of it in full. Oh, happy day. Well, we're not Simon, son of John, who became Peter the Rock. But we do need to hear Jesus calling us to follow him and hear what he wants us to do in the kingdom that he's building. So why not do a simple exercise? What do I say when Jesus says to me, Michael, son of Stephen, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Or feed my lambs. Michael Stevenson, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And look after the flock. Michael, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. 
Well, then feed my sheep. Now, John's book ends by dismissing a rumor that Jesus said to him that John would still be around when Jesus returned. And he said, that's a rumor. That isn't what Jesus said. He wanted to get that straight right at the end. And he then goes on to say that he could have gone, gone on speaking about the other things that Jesus did forever. There's so many stories. Now look at verse 25 right at the end, how the book finishes. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. John's told his gospel story. And he leaves us with the story of Peter being reconciled with his Lord. And being told that he will do what Jesus called him to do. Until he reaches old age, when he too will be crucified. Well, one day we will see the Lord. The man, Jesus, who is risen from the dead. He will have prepared a meal, a wedding breakfast, for all those who can say to him, Yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Well, as we take a seat, we're going to invite Mike back up to think through a bit more about our passage. Mike, thank you so much for um, explaining that to us. You can come a bit closer. Okay. You don't have to <laughs> hide away there. Um, I think we'll ask these top three questions, if that's okay. Um, first of all, uh, what's the difference between Jesus' instruction to feed my lambs in verse 15 and feed my sheep in verse 17? Well, I'm not sure there's very much difference. And I, I was looking at this, uh, the, the three things that he says to them. It's really about, are you going to look after the church? And uh, possibly feeding my sheep is a little bit more talking about more mature believers than feeding lambs, maybe people who are just coming to the faith. Um, I'm not sure we're told really what the difference is. We, we get these pictures, and sometimes pictures are helpful and sometimes they're not. So the church. The church, yes. Do your work in the church. I think it's yeah, all about. Yeah. Um, I'm not yeah. sure you can say that the first response gets one and the second response gets another one. It's really Jesus is saying any response that says that you love me hmm. uh, means there's a requirement for you to do something about it and you will demonstrate that by working, hmm. doing the call that I've called you to, which is to launch the church and, uh, and to work in it. Great. Use the gifts that I've given you. Thank you um, so much. Um, that top question there, why does uh, Jesus tell Peter about his death? It's probably not something we want to know. Um, I can't see how this is helpful for Peter to know at that point or this point. Well, I, I think probably the main thing that Jesus is doing is he's telling Peter, you might have messed up big time and denied me three times. You said you were going to lay down your life for me and then you ran away and you, you denied that you even knew me. But Jesus is saying, I know that you will follow me now. I know that you will follow me until the end. And in fact, Peter, at the end, you will die a death like mine. So I think he was really kind of reversing the fact that Peter would have felt dreadful about what he'd done, how he'd let his Lord down. And Jesus was perhaps specially just 
saying that to him. But of course, we don't know why Jesus says some things. What there was between him and Peter, I'm, I'm just surmising. It might be worth just chipping in that when you see the disciples in action in the book of Acts, having received the Spirit, actually to suffer in this way is an enormous privilege for them, which is far hard for us to get our head around. But to suffer, to be forgiven, to be included within this name is a huge thing, isn't it? But, yeah, yeah. All, I mean, all the disciples um, laid down their lives for what they believed. Mm-hmm. So it's not just Peter. They would all be laying down their lives, mm-hmm. except by maybe, maybe John himself, who, who seems to make it through into old age, but through lots of persecutions. So it wasn't mm-hmm. easy being a Christian in the new church. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Um, let's finish with this one. Elsewhere in the Bible, we're called to love Jesus Peter saying he likes Jesus seems to be a bad thing. Should we be striving to love Jesus or recognizing it's impossible to love Jesus? I think we need to be honest with the Lord. That's what Peter was. When asked three times, do you love me? He did his best to be as honest as he could and said, yeah, I love you. I love you with filio love, a kind of brotherly type love. Um, and that was good enough for Jesus because it was honest and Jesus was, was happy to receive that as a sign that Peter would go on to live his life for the faith so I guess he's trying to love Jesus as best he can but none of us are going to do that perfectly we're always going to mess up as Peter did to some extent maybe within our culture we don't have to worry about laying down our lives for the faith whereas in other parts of the world becoming a Christian is a very dangerous thing and you might have to in, when challenged do you love me yes I love you Lord and it means that I am prepared to lay down my life for you thank you Mike so much um, 